The big ring one. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. This is one of those outlines where I, I got a little fancy uh, as the old old school preachers. They, they used to give their messages multiple titles. Uh, so I got to do that tonight. I don't do it very often, but I've entitled it Mistaking Conviction for Gray Hair Sorrow or The Journey of Faith Part 1. I don't even know which title I like best. I like the first one so much. And then I got to the end of the outline and I thought of the second one and I thought, well, I'll give to you both of them. We'll start in Genesis chapter 42, verse 27 through 38. This should conclude uh, Genesis 42 tonight. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender, which is fodder or feed, in the end he espied or beheld his money. For behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid. And this fear is what we've been talking about, conviction and reverence, tinge of all. And they said one to another, and, and, and I think it's interesting here that we notice as soon as reverence occurs, they're compelled to witness of the experience they just had. What is this that God hath done unto us? And you might mark in your margins, uh, because I, I had made this mistake before as well, going through Genesis 42, it's only one of the brethren that's noticed this so far. The rest of them will notice it when they get to Jacob's uh, and when they get home to their home country. But they're all stirred up over one bag at this point, having the money returned or restored unto them. And they came unto Jacob, their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of our father. One is not, the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me, and take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me, then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you, your brother. And ye shall traffic, which just simply means trade as merchant men. You shall have access to the marketplace, if you want to look at it that way, in the land. And he's referring to Egypt, where the grain is. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. Such is the case when we, by faith, follow the path laid before us by the Lord, that though our sacks logically should be spent or emptied or wasted from the journey, they are discovered to be fully restored, not a cent missing. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. They saw the work of God earlier and all were stirred up, all were in fear. Here with their father, they see the work of God again and they're afraid or stirred up. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Mistaking conviction for gray hair sorrow or the journey of faith, 
part one. And really, there's a, this journey continues, which is why I lean towards that second title. It's not as fun, but I lean towards that second title for this remaining section of Genesis. We have four points to work with tonight. So I got, a lot to, I got to do a lot of fun things. And Robert, I think, is the blame here because we talked about sermon outlining. And the next thing you know, I preached two short sermons on Sunday. Brother Thorne, you missed it. It's probably not going to happen again. Then today I give you two fancy titles for the outline and then four points with alliteration. None of these things are things that I've done for years, but you got me thinking about it, brother, so here we go. Point number one, the weary receivers. Point number two, the wicked reception. Point number three, the wonderful revelation. And lastly, the work rendered. We start with the weary receivers. The weary receivers. The journey back home for... These men would have been nearly 250 miles, assuming Jacob was still living in Hebron and that Joseph was uh, very likely stationed near the city of Memphis, which is about 10 miles south of present-day Cairo. It would have taken them nearly three weeks to get back. Uh, it's, you could say, well, the money's bit was there in all their bags all along. Uh, but providentially, it wasn't revealed until God had intended for it to be. They went at least three weeks and never looked in any of those sacks. If, I only have one brother, but if we went on a journey and about halfway through the trip, I found out he still had all the money we shouldn't have anymore. You better believe the next step I take is to check my bag to see if I also have my money and then begin to barter to get some of his. That's what brothers do. But they don't look outside the, his one bag. They're stirred up and troubled so much by the one bag. And the hand of God has stayed. They are firmly within the control and the grasp of his sovereign grip. And always have been, but he's revealing it to them here. At some point during that journey, one of them made the first discovery that their bags had been heavier than should have been expected. And this caused all of them to be weighed down with guilt and fear. If he discovered, if it was a three-week journey and a week and a half in, he discovers this. I imagine the last week and a half was the hardest part of that journey. During the journey up to that point, their mental state was that they had traveled all that way, paid the fair price for grain during the time of a great famine, and had to leave their brother Simeon in hopes of being able to return and trade for more grain. Now, their mindset is that they had uh, what they had received was by grace, or that there was some horrible, grave error that they were now going to have to answer for when they return, if they return, and they will most definitely be accused as spies. This kind of grace for the guilty is troublesome, to say the least. They know that at some point they're going to have to stand in front of that Egyptian leader, which we know to be Joseph, and they're going to have to explain this. They're going to have to answer for it. They would now have to somehow deal with the fact that they got something for nothing. What could they do? What could they say? Thankfully, we get to see a little bit of it before the end here. Matthew Henry writes on this set of texts, the brethren came for corn, and corn they had. Not only so, but every man had his money given back. Thus Christ, like Joseph, gives out supplies without money and without price. The poorest are invited to buy, but guilty consciences are apt to take good providence in a bad sense, to put wrong meanings even upon things that make for them. All these things are against me, Jacob says. He, he lists, and this brings us into the wicked reception. He lists how his children have bereaved him of all of his household. 
He's fretting over losing Joseph already. He's fretting over losing Simeon. And he's fretting over losing Benjamin. Even though he keeps saying no, he's fretting as though it's already happened. But God's plan was to give him one son back. To keep all his children and restore the one that had been missing for 20 some years. Jacob wasn't looking for the providence of God. Notice he initially blames his his remaining nine sons for emptying or bereaving his house. Minus Joseph, who was not. Minus Benjamin, who remained. Minus Simeon, who was withheld. It's interesting that one of the things they don't tell their dad, and, and I'll get to it in a minute, but they are very accurate in their depiction of what happened in Egypt, are they not? I'll give you the verses. You can look at it later. Uh, but it, it, they don't leave out a lot. The only thing they left out is that they were all in the hold for three days. Everything else is accurate right down the line. I would imagine even the Shechemites would say, that can't be Jacob's kids. They were honest to daddy. They didn't hold back any details. They didn't elaborate. They didn't get fancy. They didn't dip the truth in blood before they handed it to dad. They were honest for maybe the first time. Knowing them as Jacob did, he likely feared that they had provoked the Egyptians and wrongfully brought home, brought home their money. For Jacob, the last time he'd seen Joseph was when he had dispatched Joseph to check on these sons. They were the ones who told him Joseph was gone 20 years ago. They now stand before him telling him that Simeon's gone, Benjamin's about to go too, as well as to be permitted to barter for more grain with Egypt. All these things are against me, he says. And we spent a lot of time on that verse Sunday. We won't dwell there very long, but... In a lot of ways, this is a hard lesson for all of us. And for Jacob, it's one he should have learned decades earlier. You think about the journey of Jacob, and I know that we kind of jumped in after a lot of that in our study here, but not just with what we all can easily recollect that happened with his father, but think about what happened with his father-in-law and how many times Jacob had to do it his way. His name means usurper, by the way. Jacob wasn't really usurping Esau. He was spent a whole lifetime usurping God over and over and over and over again. This world was not his home. This world is not our home. The tough lessons that we can learn from Jacob here are going to be hard for all of us. He is fretting over a very real loss and the reality of suffering even more loss. But can we fret and be faithful? It's hard. All things here will work against us unless providentially hindered. This is a fallen creation because of our own sin. This very planet, all life on it, is perishing because of us. And it will all work against us as promised by God. And indeed, all these things were against the old man of Jacob, but for the new man Israel, it was to his good, according to the will of God. Every verse of our text for this outline lines up 100% with the preceding verses that these boys experienced. Uh, again, I can't read through all of it, but it's in this one chapter. The events happen in chapter 42, right here, verses 7 through 20. And if you go home tonight and read those verses and then read verses 30 through 34, you'll see these boys were very, very accurate in what they told their dad. I shouldn't say these boys. It's been 20 years. Some of them were men 20 years earlier. 
Now they're older men. I don't want to say ancient. Some of them would likely be around my age. But they're adults, we'll say. Joseph's an adult. They're adults. And they confess every detail to their father. And it's not because they're adults, kids, that they should be honest. Because when you get to be an adult, sometimes it's just easier to not even go into it with your older parents. But they go into all of it with Jacob. This is the situation. This is what we went through. And they make that final discovery together of all of their bags being restored. Point number three, the wonderful revelation. I've already let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. But look at the sequence of events here. In verse 28, only one of the brethren discovers that he has been restored his money. The boys confess the previous events in total in verses 30 through 34. They confess in verse 34 that Benjamin must go back with them. Remember verse 18, Joseph said, This do and live, for I fear God. That fear is involved here. Yeah, I mean, think about where that fear is introduced. Joseph says, This do and live, for I fear God. They discover one bag has been restored, and they fear, and they tie God to it immediately in the same verse. If they do this, they will all live, so says the Egyptian ruler who fears the Lord. Then in verse 35, every man discovers that he had been restored as well. How good is God? Is there anybody in this room that would say, these boys have been through enough, they deserved to be restored? As we were laying the outlines out, it was even hard to imagine that Joseph wouldn't have wanted some kind of revenge on these men. They did not deserve their gold restored unto them. They didn't deserve the opportunity to purchase the grain. And neither do I. Neither do you. But they are restored. Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, we quoted a lot. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We read that phrase, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Unto him be glory throughout all ages. It doesn't just work forward. It was for all time. All the way back to the garden. Unto him and him only be the glory. Let's quote Matthew Henry one more time. He says, thus does the Lord Jesus conceal himself and his favor. Thus he rebukes and chastens those for whom he has purposes. For those whom he has purposes of love, by sharp corrections and humbling convictions, he will break the stoutness and mar the pride of the heart and bring to true repentance. Yet before sinners fully, yet before sinners fully know him or taste that he is gracious, he consults their good and sustains their souls to wait for him. May we do thus never yielding to discouragement, determining to seek no other refuge, and humbling ourselves more and more under his mighty hand. In due time, he will answer our petitions and do for us more than we can expect. Think on this for a while, beloved. Does not Jesus require us to return to him when we have strayed? That was the court requirement here. That is still the requirement today. Any of us are to stray. We might find the... the, the gumption, the will, the pride, if you will, to stray further and further and further. But if we are truly His, it is required for us to return. Think again of that, that son of, uh, uh, prodigal son. 
as he recognizes he does not belong outside his father's kingdom. He recognizes there's only one place for him to be. Even if he is the lowest servant, he belongs in his father's kingdom. Would not the purpose of every trial be to see that uh, be to see that is also indeed that we confess with our tongue? Would the purpose not be that we actually act what it is we say? We say the right words in here. All of us do. We're tested out there. He doesn't test us in here too often because in here we all know the right words to say. But out there, will they say it? Out there, will they run that race? Out there, will they believe it? Will they walk that walk? They might be the only Bible some will ever see. Here's an example. Abraham receives famine. Abraham runs to Egypt. You've gone to the Lord's promised land. He left Ur of Chaldees, and he was sent and dispatched to Canaan. A famine occurs. He runs to the world. He runs to Egypt. Let me give you another example. Abraham receives a second famine. Abraham runs to Gerar. Isaac does the exact same thing. This time, God's placed his man in Egypt to receive those who are in need during the famine. Our last and final point, the work rendered. You might get another short sermon after all, Brother Sorry. The work rendered. This is why I don't do alliteration and all this. It just goes too fast. It just goes too quickly. We can see the change in these men as their father blames them for the loss of his children. And we really ought to think about this situation as being as ugly and as confrontational as you might imagine it to be. Jacob looks at his nine adult children that are standing in front of him and says, you have killed my house. You have killed all of my children. You've emptied my home. You come back here and desire to take another of my children. And you have all the money that I sent you with to buy the grain. You did this dishonestly. All these things are against me. Remember the last thing we read of Jacob? He was grievous. So grievous he could not be consoled by his children. And this man flat wears out these adult children in this one altercation. He didn't handle Dinah being defiled well either, if you recall. He stayed silent and stayed out in the fields. The boys went and handled the problem. And then when he heard of what happened, he said, we're outnumbered. You've slain me. And the boy said, should our sister, should Dinah be treated like a harlot? Men, we must lead our homes. This is not a threat for you to go and be mean to your household. This is an absolute concern. The reason America is straying, the reason a lot of these things are occurring, isn't because it's outside of God's providence, but it is because we've lost our homes. Jacob should have been a man. Dinah was defiled. We all know this to be wrong, but Jacob should have been involved in handling it. His boys shouldn't have been permitted to go and do what they did, 20-something or not. But he didn't handle them either. He yelled at them and then ran. Here, this situation happens, and we discussed uh, a couple chapters ago why it would have made sense for Benjamin not to go, why it would have made sense for Jacob not to go. But he entrusted these nine men 
This one here, we pick on him a lot. I know we do. But when I trust Isaac to go and do something, I have to accept what he's going to bring back. I've entrusted him. You know, in, back in the day, I don't even think I can get it off. I can't. They would have had a signet ring, which meant that he could sign off on my behalf because I've given him my signet ring, which means whatever decisions he makes, whatever he does, whatever is executed under his authority is as if it was done under mine directly. He called these nine boys, to ten with Simeon, to go into Egypt lest we die. They went. They came back with grain. They came back with the money they were sent with. And they came back with a way. And there's only one in which they could live. And Jacob's response was, all these things are against me. You've killed my entire house. Okay, if we're not there yet, let me go ahead and say it the way it probably would have been experienced by these men. Because sons, no matter how old they are, still receive the words of their parents in the same fashion. Jacob essentially said, I am disappointed in you boys. You have failed me again. And when a father uses the word again, that means you've failed me over and over and over. It's like an F. You faileth me. You come back to my home with only one way in which we shall live and it will cost me again. Jacob doesn't own any of this. The words Jacob uses dispatches all of the guilt, all of the blame on his boys, which is why we see the boys repentant first. Reuben stands and offers his own children in place of Benjamin. Romans 5, 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. I don't think, as some commentators seem to, that he did this as an empty vow. I think Reuben, it's possible, is to the point where he is convicted that this is the right path, this is the right thing to do. Now, I don't think that it was a godly thing to offer. Please don't take it that way, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But what Jacob does here is speak. Remember, we talked about that word roughly. When they say Joseph spoke, or the Egyptian ruler, the lord of the land, spoke roughly with us, it, was, it, was, it, it can be translated stiff-necked. It was a stiff-necked fashion in which he spoke to us. They heard it through an Egyptian tongue translated to them. But that's the news they bring back to their father. Most dads would probably get riled up on behalf of their sons at that news. Jacob speaks more roughly to his boys than they had told him Joseph spoke to them. And, because we know that was an accurate assessment, more roughly than he actually did speak to them. He left faith out of the entire equation. Reuben seemingly trusted in the action that this God-fearing Egyptian had laid out for them. Did you hear that sentence? Reuben seemingly trusted in the action that God-fearing Egyptian had laid out for them. Let me just cut out some words. Reuben believed God's plan. The first time. But he's believing in something. He's making decisions, which this family has failed to do over and over again. Jacob, though, appears not to. Is it fair for someone who had already lost so much to be expected to believe in the unlikely? Is it fair for us to say that Jacob 
should be ashamed of himself for not being faithful, not being a man in his home, not leading through this crisis and crisis and crisis. He's been through so much. Anybody in here ever been through anything? Has the next storm waited for you to get over it before it arrived? It's not likely. Is it too much to ask him to believe in what's unlikely? How about the impossible? Is it too much to ask for him to believe in the impossible? Is it too much for us to call upon Jacob, who survived his brother's wrath for so many years, and then comes face to face with him, and he's terrified, and Esau essentially gives him a brotherly kiss? That would have been pretty unlikely, probably pretty impossible. He stole from Laban. I know it was Rachel, but that's his wife, and he's the head of the house. He stole an idol from Laban, his father-in-law, and he manipulated some things and took advantage of Laban about as much as Laban had taken advantage of him. But he survived that too, which is pretty unlikely. What he did with the Shechemites, he's right. He was outnumbered. They should have slain him, but they didn't, and that's pretty impossible. That's pretty unlikely. There is never just cause to fear that God has let things get out of control, beloved. Never. He's either sovereign or he's not. Which means the storms we weather right now are for the good of his will and likely for our betterment. That's hard to choke down depending on what you're going through. Uh, if you're uh, Pete Horn's daughter, Rachel, right now, Probably really hard. Really hard to think that this is for your good in any possible way. If you're my brother Nathaniel, and I know he's going through it, every once in a while he crosses the path of a mirror and it becomes really hard to remember that this might be for the good of God's plan. Let's shift the focus to Reuben for a minute. Reuben offers to, slay his own, uh, to allow his father to slay his own two children if he doesn't bring Benjamin back. Reuben is seemingly believing in the impossible. Why would Reuben have greater faith than Jacob? Is Reuben a better man? I know that he stopped his brethren from killing Joseph, but is Reuben a better man? He's still a killer. He's still a liar. Uh, he was involved in the whole Shechemite incident. He's one of the oldest. So it was probably him and maybe two other brothers from when we went through that. Now, Reuben, he's a deceiver just like his old man. Why would Reuben deserve the ability to see that this might be God's plan for them? Reuben had a taste of life. Reuben experienced unforeseen, impossible, and unlikely restoration. He opened the bag, and there it is. And I'm not saying money is restoration, but it is a type in this scenario of restoration. They expected that loss. They expected to be without and that's where God sometimes does his best work. He just likes to blow you away every once in a while. Reuben's not quite there yet, and it's likely neither are we. Having to sacrifice his own sons would not honor God, and it probably wouldn't have honored Jacob. Uh, it would have been Jacob's grandchildren. Seeing there's still more to their journey, they do still have to, do, uh, they do still have to go back to Egypt at some point or defy him again, and do it their way. We can be encouraged, though, that there's some kind of growth. There's something happening with Reuben and his brethren. 
they're starting to see something. And, you know, and we look for evidence all the time, right? Like if the Lord had laid out His will for us, His plan for us, would we believe it? Would we follow it? The whole idea of free will. Here it kind of happened, right? Joseph said in dreams that this is what was going to happen. And we don't have in the text that God gave him those dreams, but these things are coming to pass. They're about to find out Joseph's alive, brethren. There's a bigger surprise coming than the sacks being filled with their original money. Joseph's still alive. Jacob is talking and acting like he's lost everything, and he's about to be restored of everything. Even Job would probably smack him in the back of the head. Wake up! Do you see what's happening here? God loves you so much that you didn't die from this famine over the last few years. You're still here. And there is a way. So we lose sight of that when we forget the context here. They're in a famine. There's no grain anywhere. And no one outside of Egypt, and probably most in Egypt, have no idea how long that famine's going to last. When you're three and a half years into a seven-year famine and you don't know it ends in three and a half years, well, we don't have to guess the widow woman with Elijah. Her and her boy were getting ready to eat sticks so they could die, remember? So we know what that mindset is like. And yet these boys have been told there's a way. Prove Benjamin's alive. In other words, prove yourselves faithful. Do as you've been commanded and live. There's a way, Dad. And Jacob says it's all for naught. You can't have Benjamin. You can't take yet one more. Let's say it directly. Jacob is saying, Simeon is good as dead. I'm keeping my Benjamin. He's saying to nine of his children, the one that you left behind. And then he's talking about Benjamin. And who knows for how many years he's been talking about Rachel in front of these boys. Do you know how much value they have in their father's eyes based on how he's treated them? Our words have meaning. We may not be what we know we truly ought to be as God's children, but rejoice, beloved. We are not who we once were. Repent where we have failed. God has shown us there's a way too. It's an impossible way. A so unlikely of a way. And yet it is sealed. Yet it is living and breathing. Yet it is effectual. Yet it brings about change. There is a way. The journey may be hard, but there is a way. May the Lord bless this message. Amen. All right, as we go into our prayer.